Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of islands. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today we're talking about the Shikoku region of Japan. And Paul, I recently realized, and I just said to you before we started recording, but I'll say it into the microphone this time, that this is the only region of Japan that I haven't been to yet. And I had a lot of fun researching it and finding out about all those cool places that I haven't yet visited. Yeah, there's definitely other regions I haven't been to. I have not been to Shikoku either, but I had the same enjoyment researching this as you did. I know, or I came into this knowing almost nothing about Shikoku Mm -hmm. other than it was an island in Japan. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot. So everything I learned pretty much is new. Cool. So I guess we should probably say where Shikoku is. Shikoku is one of the main islands of Japan. It is the second smallest of the main islands after Okinawa. If you're a five main islander type of guy. Yeah. yeah. There are a lot of sources I saw saying it's the smallest of the four main islands. Depends how you want to think about it. Uh, But basically, it's kind of nestled in between Kyushu and Honshu. There's this little pocket kind of east-northeast of Kyushu, just south of Hiroshima, and Okayama, it's like southwest from Kyoto and Osaka, just nestled in there in this little, uh, this in the water there, because it's an island. And on the south side of that island, you got the Pacific Ocean. Does that, does that illustrate its location well? <laughs> yeah, I think that was a pretty good description, as much as you can describe where something is with words. Mm-hmm. Shikoku consists of four prefectures. Mm-hmm. Ehime, Kagawa, Kochi, and Tokushima. That is correct. And actually, the name Shikoku translates to four countries or four provinces, which you might think refers to those four prefectures, but it actually refers to the four former provinces, Awa, Tosa, Sanuki, and Iyo. And we'll learn in the history section why those names changed. Yeah, just to make history a little more confusing. Mm. There's still things today named after the old regions or prefectures. Yeah. and I was surprised at how recent that change was, actually. There's mountains running east and west that kind of divide Shikoku in half. So you have a narrow northern region running along the Seto Inland Sea that faces Honshu. And then you have the southern region that faces the Pacific Ocean. Right. And most of Shikoku's 3.8 million inhabitants live on the north side, which seems like it kind of makes sense because you want to be close to everything else that's happening on, you know, in mainland Japan, right? Yeah. There's more going on there than when you're just looking off into the Pacific Ocean. Being on an island like that is going to help you to be able to trade with the larger islands more easily. Yep. I also thought it was interesting that Shikoku is the largest of Japan's islands that doesn't have a single volcano. That's fascinating. No volcanoes. Wow. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I thought so. So what about Shikoku's culture? You know, each region of Japan has its own kind of culture a little bit. And historically, Shikoku was fairly isolated from the rest of Japan. So what I saw is that it seems like it retains more of that old kind of culture you know you see a lot of old temples around that kind of thing that aspect reminded me a little bit of Kyushu I felt like you know there are a lot of rural places where that kind of older culture still is seen around a lot you know what I mean absolutely and there's a lot of small towns in Shikoku where you can really get that uh, old town feeling Mm -hmm. I saw one place describe it as like a southern culture and i was like to me as an american that means a certain thing i don't know what exactly they meant that to mean but i guess i could it could maybe mean similar like a slower more relaxed way of life yeah i think that makes sense so we keep saying shikoku is the smallest of the four main islands but it's still fairly big for an island yeah it's the 50th largest island in the world if we're talking area Uh, and the 23rd most populated island in the world. So, pretty big island and pretty well populated. Yeah. For an island. 
Should we talk about what Shikoku's probably most famous for, at least tourist-wise? Yes, we should. It's the Shikoku Pilgrimage, or Shikoku Junre, or Shikoku Hinro. Yeah. So this is a 1,200-kilometer pilgrimage route around the whole island that takes you to 88 different temples. And it looks super cool. I would love to take a couple months to do this pilgrimage, because that's how long it takes if you're walking it. Yes. About 60 days, yeah. they say. So the route was established by a 9th century monk named Kukai, who we have mentioned at least a couple times before. He was the founder of Shingon Buddhism. He has his mausoleum at Koyasan, you know, this little mountain temple village kind of place in Wakayama. Um, so like I said, it can take up to 60 days to walk the whole thing. These days, most people take buses or taxis or just do a little section of it. I saw that some people actually bike the route, and it's, it takes like 30 days to do that. I saw that. That sounds really cool. Yeah. That'd be like a good way of like keeping it traditional, but still speeding it up a little bit. Yeah. Man, maybe I'd I can, be down to walk, too, if I had enough time. Yeah, maybe I can take a month off work and go bike around Shikoku. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, it's still very popular today. The pilgrims traditionally wear a white costume with like the pointy straw hat. So if you see anyone walking around like that, they're on the pilgrimage. Pointy straw hat. You're talking like the conical kind of yeah. quintessential Asian hat maybe that people think of. Yes, exactly. Okay. That's cool. The pilgrimage to the 88 temples takes you around the entire island and up and down into the mountains as well. And there's ideas to it as well, as far as what you're supposed to get out of it spiritually. Temples 1 through 23 represent the idea of awakening. Temples 24 through 39 represent austerity and discipline. 40 through 65, attaining enlightenment. And 66 through 88, entering nirvana. Wow. You did a bit of a deep dive, huh? I don't think I came across that. I found it pretty fascinating. I mean, it seemed like quite the journey. Yeah. So those are numbered like in order of how you visit them? There is a traditional order, although a lot of people do it backwards or hop in and out where they please. Cool. Should we talk about Shikoku history a little bit? I would love to. I found... A pretty cool website, shikokutours.com. They had a page called A Brief History of Shikoku. Oh. And there was a, a tagline that said, From the prehistory of Shikoku to the present day, we tried to keep it brief, which I thought was funny because it's not brief at all. Like it starts <laughs> at the last ice age. Yeah, I mean, brief for 15,000 years of history. Yeah, that's true. There was a lot of stuff going on. But that was basically my main source for the history section. So I got a lot of good info there, which I will try to condense a bit more than they did. Okay. So it goes all the way back, huh? Yep. During the last Ice Age, Shikoku was connected to Honshu by a large land bridge. And then the ice melted and that Seto inland sea formed, which cut off Shikoku from Honshu and you know the rest of Japan. The oldest evidence of human habitation is from the Jomon period, which was, you know, 14,000 to 300 BCE. And you can actually see some human remains from that period at the Kamikuroiwa Archaeological Museum. Did you see that, Paul? Yeah, I did. That's so cool. You can see stuff that old. They have a mostly complete female skeleton and some other bones that were found. Get this. They were found by a junior high student in 1961. Like, can you imagine just stumbling across something that old? I would love that. I yeah. think I would love being on an archaeological dig trying to find stuff. Mm -hmm. I'd be excited over a shard of pottery, much less a 10,000-year-old skeleton. Totally. <laughs> Habitation continued into the Ayoi period which was 300 BCE to 300 AD or so. Uh, there's actually a pot from that era 
coated in stalactite in a cave in Kochi Prefecture. That's cool. It's like enveloped in a stalactite, it sounded like. Yeah, I couldn't find a picture of it. Sometimes yeah. the artifacts, you can't like find pictures, but that, that's what it said, or at least yeah. started to form on it. Yeah. Um, and then in the Kofun period, which was 300 to 538 AD, there are many burial mounds, those key-shaped, huge burial mounds that are like the size of hills. Mm -hmm. Those are dotted all over the place. Anywhere there's flat ground in Shikoku, you're probably going to find a Kofun. Cool. According to the Kojiki, that 8th century book that blended history and mythology, we've talked about that book a few times. A few times. That said that Shikoku was the second island created by the kami, the gods. And the Nihon Shoki, the other really old book about Japanese history, that one said that Emperor Yomei and his son visited Shikoku and bathed at Dogo Onsen. And remember that name, that's going to come up a little later. Dogo Onsen. This place still exists and it dates back that far, which is just insane to me. But Yeah, that makes it the oldest mentioned bath in all of Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so around the year 700 or so is when a mountain ascetic named Enno Gyoja walked around the coast and mountains of Shikoku preaching enlightenment and laying the foundation for that pilgrimage that we talked about in the intro. Yeah, and following N came Gyoki, who traveled around the island helping the poor. And of the 88 pilgrimage temples... Gyoki is said to have established 37 of them himself. Hmm. Busy guy. Yeah, <clears throat> you'd have to be to establish that many temples. Around 100 years later came Kukai, who we mentioned in the intro. He's the one that's credited with founding the pilgrimage. You know the coolest fact I found about Kukai? What's that? Is that he was also a talented engineer. Mm. And some of the irrigation projects that he designed are still functioning today. Wow. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I didn't realize that. I mean, that was back when like monks were the most learned people around. So they probably were mathematicians and engineers and architects and everything else too. Yeah. I thought it was cool when I visited uh, Koya-san and saw his mausoleum. Supposedly he's not dead. He's just in eternal meditation there. Thought that was fun. Yeah. So a little later on was when the island was divided into those four provinces that I mentioned, Awa, Tosa, Sanuki, and Iyo. And from that point on, the whole island was known as Shikoku for those four provinces. And between then and the Edo period, lots of stuff happened. I kind of wanted to gloss over that a little bit. Are you okay with that, Paul? Yeah, I mean, pretty much the next thing I was going to mention is during... The Warring States period, Chosokabe Motuchika unified Shikoku. Mm -hmm. But not long after that, Toyotomi Hideyoshi came along and invaded from the mainland in 1585 and added Shikoku to the nation of Japan officially. Mm -hmm. So one, I just wanted to mention one thing in that period that we were kind of going to gloss over that I thought was really cool. Okay. So in Iyo, one of those four provinces, there was a, the Kono clan, and they were originally pirates. Like, they were going around the sea there, charging tolls for all the shipping in the Seto Inland Sea. But over time, they actually evolved into a coast guard and eventually became the core of the Japanese Navy. I saw that, too. That's really cool. Yeah, I just like that idea of pirates and turning into the Navy. It's almost like they were probably doing the same thing the whole time. But for a while, they're called pirates, and then they're the Coast Guard, keeping yeah. you safe, and now they're the Navy. Yeah, funny how that, how that works. They just uh, got more official over time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Toyotomi Hideyoshi invaded, brought the country closer to the Edo period, and then in the Edo period, those feudal lords that had ruled those four provinces before, they were replaced by generals that were loyal to the Tokugawa shogunate, you know, the people that ruled through the Edo period. Mm -hmm. And these guys, these generals that came in to take the place of all the feudal lords, they are the guys that built all the castles around Shikoku that we're going to be talking about 
in a little bit. Yeah, Shikoku is also pretty well known for their castles. Yeah, a lot of cool castles. We mentioned in the castles episode, there's only 12 original castles left in Japan. A number of them are in Shikoku. Yes, exactly. And none of them ever saw battle action because they were all built during the Edo period, which was a peaceful period. Yeah, makes sense that they would be some of the original castles that are still around if they never... Yeah, they never got sieged and burned down. (laughs) So also in the Edo period, this is when Sanuki, one of those um, provinces, became a major producer of wheat, leading to the popularity of Sanuki udon, which is still a very popular food today, especially in Kagawa Prefecture. Yes. Shikoku was actually heavily involved in the political affairs that led to the downfall of the Tokugawa shogunate. The Tosa clan, in particular, formed a revolutionary alliance with a couple other clans to fight war against the shogunate in the name of the imperial throne, to restore the emperor, but also bring democracy, which is complicated, (laughs) right? To say the least. And it it did both things, too, which Mm. is even more complicated. Yeah, a crazy time. Yeah. So when the Meiji period started in in 1868, this is also when those old four feudal domains were replaced by prefectures. So it was that recently that those four ancient provinces were renamed to the current prefectural names, Tokushima, Kagawa, Ehime, and Kochi. And then Shikoku became a leader in Japan's Industrial Revolution. And I was actually surprised to learn that in the years leading up to World War II, Mitsukue Bay in Ehime was used to train the crews of submarines used in the attack on Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. I didn't even realize that there were Japanese submarines at Pearl Harbor. There were a lot of Japanese submarines all over during World War II. At this point, To be honest, I'm probably more well-versed in Japanese history than American history. (laughs) (laughs) I never really looked into Pearl Harbor that much, but so did they travel all the way from Japan underwater or were they like Uh, deployed from ships? Yeah. 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 It's crazy that submarines can travel that far. Yeah. We should do an episode about submarines. (laughs) I mean, these days, submarines, some of the nuclear submarines can go... So long. I don't I don't know how often they have to surface, but they can go like a year or more without having to return to port anywhere. That's crazy. Yeah. How do you even hold that much food for all those crew members, you know? Awful, dense ration bars, maybe? <laughs> I I don't know. Yeah. You still eating hardtack or something? I don't know. Oranges to they go fishing or scurvy. something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, these days it's probably like little vitamin C packs. Yeah. Anyway, uh, more recently, in 1985, the great Naruto Bridge linked Shikoku to Honshu for the first time ever by road. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. It's surprising that it was like, it wasn't until 1985 that you could drive from Honshu to Shikoku. Well, it's a long ways. That's not a small bridge. That's true. But then they followed it right up and built the great Seto Bridge in 1988. Uh, and then they built another one in 1999. So now there's three bridges mm-hmm. that connect Shikoku to Hanshu. And there's a train that goes on one of them. So it's uh, so much more connected to the mainland than it, than it used to be. Yep. All right, Paul, let's talk about some prefectures. Tokushima. Yes. Tokushima prefecture is on the east side of Shikoku. So this is the one that's connected to Kansai, like around Kyoto and Osaka. It's connected by a couple bridges and a smaller island. Yeah. And underneath that great Naruto bridge, which we just mentioned in the history section, you'll find the famous Naruto whirlpools, which Mm -hmm. look really cool. They're called that because they're in the Naruto Strait. And this is also where that anime character got his name, if you're wondering that. And why he has a whirlpool symbol. Yeah, on his headband. Yeah. Did you ever watch that show? Not much. Hmm. I feel like it's good. Everybody loves it. 
But that was one of those ones where like I looked at it and it was like hundreds of episodes and ongoing and I was like, I just don't know if I can conquer this yeah. thing. I was gonna say those that's one of those ones that's just a big commitment. There's so so many episodes. Yeah. If I would have gotten into it when I was young enough, maybe I could have powered through. Yeah. Uh so these whirlpools are are formed because of opposing water currents that are colliding. And they can reach speeds of up to 20 kilometers per hour and stretch over 20 meters wide. Like these are big things. They're huge. You're, you're looking at those and you're just like, yeah, I would immediately die if I was down there. <laughs> exactly. So they have sightseeing boats that can bring you out to see them. Or if you want to keep a safe distance, you can walk along a pathway that goes under the bridge. That's so cool. Yeah. Looks like it gives you some pretty great views. Yeah, I saw some really cool pictures. Mm-hmm. Also in Tokushima is the Ia Valley. Um, it's a remote mountainous valley off in the west of the prefecture. And it's very secluded with deep mountain slopes and rocky gorges, just beautiful scenery. And the really cool part is there's three vine bridges there that are said to date back to about 1200 or so, at least the current ones, but they were possibly building bridges like that even longer before that. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, these aren't like bridges that have been there. Like it's not the same vines that have been there since the 1200s, you know, they would have decayed. And I imagine you have to keep like, you're, you're constantly weaving new vines in or growing new vines. Yeah, they rebuild them every few years. So it's like, they're safe. You can walk across them. You don't need to worry about them falling apart. Like, I feel like there were a bunch of movies when we were kids where somebody had to climb across this vine bridge that's just like falling apart and then it snaps when they're halfway across. Oh, one half snaps and they're dangling there for a while. Always, always, yes. Yeah, so uh, there used to be 13 of these vine bridges. These days, there are only three left. The largest one is 150 feet across and hangs almost 50 feet above the water. That's so cool. Yeah. They, they look amazing. Yeah. And the whole Ia Valley looks really pretty. Actually, the very first review that I saw for this place said, quote, this is one of the best places I've been in my life, honestly. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. I also saw, I don't know if this is more legend or history, but the reason at least those current bridges were built was because there was a samurai clan that was running away from another clan that they lost against. So they built vine bridges in case they got chased. They could just hack them down real quick and no one could follow them. Just like in the movies. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wait till they're on it and cut it loose. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, The Eon Valley is also considered one of the three hidden valleys of Japan. Oh, of course there's three (laughs) hidden valleys of Japan. Yep. It's known for being like raw and remote. And uh, there are also, besides these vine bridges, there are some like thatched roof houses, like just old looking stuff. You can kind of imagine that you time traveled to, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago. Seems like a fun place. Yeah, absolutely. If you're into beaches, Tokushima has some cool beaches too. One is uh, the Anan Coast. It's known for its beautiful natural scenery. They have a sea turtle preserve. Oh, nice. Yeah. And you can surf, you can hike the cliffs, you can watch the sea turtles. Between uh, mid-May and mid-August, the sea turtles actually lay their eggs on the beach. Cool. If you visit the right time. Don't get too time, close. I imagine you could see them all hatching and scurrying off into the water. That'd be cool. Uh, there's a sea turtle museum at Ohama Beach, too, if you're interested in learning about the turtles. Nice, that's cool. Another very famous attraction in Tokushima is Awa Odori. This is a festival that they hold in August. A lot of people consider it the very best summer festival in Japan, Paul. That's high praise. Yeah. So it started as an Obon celebration. That's that holiday where you're welcoming your ancestor spirits hanging out with them for a while. And the festival eventually became known as a raucous and drunken event. Ooh, that's <laughs> like us like podcasting. <laughs> yeah. There was a distinctive dance style that formed over the years, which is what the name of the festival refers to. 
So odori means dance, and they close off the streets each night for dancing. There's lots of drums and shamisen and bells. Sounds like a grand old time. And I, I had to mention Nagoro. Okay. This is another place in Tokushima that we've talked about before. This is that tiny rural village populated by life-size dolls. Oh, okay, yeah. Surprised yeah. you didn't have this in your notes, Paul. Uh, you know, no one uh, likes to go there because it's creepy, I guess. <laughs> no, it's super cool. <laughs> we talked about it in episode 44, so you can check that out if you want to hear more about it. But basically, the idea is a former resident of the village was sad to see it kind of declining. You know, people, the residents were either dying or moving away. So she started making dolls to replace the residents that left or passed away. And now there are just tons and tons of dolls there. And it's awesomely creepy. We'll put Did it that way. Did she make a doll to replace herself? I don't know. Okay, last thing I have for Tokushima Prefecture is a special local food called sobagome zosui. I like soba. Well, this is different from normal soba. Soba is usually, you know, soba noodles, buckwheat noodles, right? Mm, yeah. This stuff is actually a thick porridge-type dish made by boiling soba seeds. Oh. Yeah. It looks like it usually has some mushrooms and veggies and stuff in there. What uh, is a soba seed? I guess it's a buckwheat seed. Oh, okay, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. What's the next prefecture, Paul? I want to talk about Kagawa Prefecture. Okay. Which is kind of the northeast of Shikoku. Yeah, this is the one that's connected to Okayama by that Seto-Ohashi bridge. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about Naoshima. It's an island in the Seto Inland Sea off the coast of Shikoku. It's very famous for its art. It's got a modern art museum. It's got tons of really cool architecturally buildings um, and sculptures. It's said to have a Mediterranean atmosphere, sandy beaches, sunny weather, a really nice getaway from the urban areas of Japan. Yeah, it sounds awesome. I saw it described as a living art gallery. Yeah. Have you seen those pictures of that giant yellow pumpkin type thing with like black dots all over it? No, I don't think so. I had seen a bunch of pictures of this thing. Like, I don't know if it was on Instagram or where, but people love posing in front of this pumpkin with like the water behind them. Okay. And it's on Naoshima. I okay. always wondered exactly where that was. There's a bunch of sculptures and stuff. Mm -hmm. Multiple museums on the island were designed by the famous architect Ando Tadao. And in addition to that, there are some municipal buildings and schools that were designed by a modern architect named Ishii Kazuhiro. So there's cool buildings all over the island, plus the sculptures and art galleries. And yeah, it looks like a super fun place to explore. There's a place called the Benese House, which is an art museum and also a hotel. So you can nice. stay there and like really live the art. Awesome. Paul, did you realize that we were actually really close to that island when we were on a trip to Japan? No. When we went to Kojima Jean Street, that's just a few miles from this island. Okay, just across the strait? Yeah. Did you hear about the art festival on the island? Um, I saw that there are festivals, like multiple festivals and famous art installations and galleries and... Yeah, they have festivals in the spring, summer, and fall, all art-related, all with like big exhibits and sculptures. Nice. But not just this island. It seemed like all of Shikoku has a really good like art uh, scene. Yeah, there's some other nearby islands that have a bunch of contemporary art on them, I think. Yeah. Another popular attraction in Kagawa is Shikoku Mura, or Shikoku Village. This is an open-air architectural museum where you can see examples of architecture from all over Shikoku. I feel like these types of places are kind of common around Japan where they like bring in a bunch of buildings from neighboring areas and they kind of display them all in one place in like an open-air Yeah, and I can't believe I've museum. never been to any of them because they all sound so cool. Yeah. 
I went to that one in Shirakawa. Nice. And then there was one like west of Tokyo that I wanted to visit on my last trip, but I didn't make it out there. But uh, so, yeah, they brought buildings from all four prefectures on Shikoku. You can see traditional farmhouses. They have a soy sauce production facility, a bunch of stuff. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah. Paul, you got anything about Konpira Shrine? Uh, yes. Uh, it is the main shrine for the multiple Konpira Shrines found around Japan. Okay. And it's dedicated to sailors and seafaring. And cool. this place looks so cool. Like this is, this is towards the top of my list of shrines I want to visit. Oh, wow. But it's not for everyone. It's located up in the slopes of Mount Zozu. So you have to go up over 1,300 steps to get to this shrine. I saw that it's considered one of the most difficult shrines to reach in the country. Yeah. Over the centuries, it developed as a mix between a shrine and a temple, like things used to do in Japan, until during the Meiji Revolution, it was designated as a shrine because they had to pick one or the other, right? But you can still see a lot of the Buddhist influence um, that was on it as well. Cool. And I saw that if you don't want to walk up those 1,300 steps, if you want to act like a lazy rich person. It only takes about 45 minutes to get halfway. That's too long, Paul. That's way too long. <laughs> halfway? 45 minutes? Are you kidding me? Well, halfway still like gets you to a bunch of auxiliary buildings and museums and stuff. Uh, I'm sorry, Paul. I'm going to need to hire a palanquin to carry me up the 1,300 steps. Did you know you can do that? Ah, uh, no. Wow, that's... Uh, does it take four people or two people maybe to lift you? It's got to be four, right? To go up that many steps. I don't know. And for anybody that's not aware, and I, I looked... We've mentioned this word, palanquin, yeah, before. I think have. last time I said palanquin or palanquin or something. I looked it up this time, so I knew how to pronounce it. Palanquin is apparently the correct pronunciation. Okay. But it's, it's that thing where you're on this chair on top of a platform and people are carrying the platform basically on their shoulders. Yep. So you feel really, you know, important. You feel like a king. Exactly. So yeah, the first 45 minutes gets you up to the main hall, past a bunch of museums and stuff. And then if you're really adventurous... You can go up another 45 minutes, up another bunch of steps, and they've got more buildings. <laughs> hmm. So like an hour and a half to the very top, right? Yes. I'm glad you put it in those terms, because when I saw 1,300 steps, I'm like, that means nothing to me. I don't, I don't know how many 1,300 steps is. How long does that take to walk up, you know? Right. It is like 1,300 steps in a row, or is it like five steps, and then you walk 50 yards, and then you go up six more steps? You know, it could yeah. be miles long and the steps. Mm -hmm. Going down is probably a lot quicker. I guess. I'm still going to have people carry me. Uh, when you're really tired on the way down, there's a shuttle bus that runs to the train station, but you have to book it in advance. That's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get you get all the way down to the bottom and then it's like, all right, now it's a 15, 20 minute walk to the train. <laughs> and then you stand on the train on your way home. I just need to hire people to carry me through my entire vacation, you know? I wonder how much that costs. <laughs> yeah, that sounds cool. So I mentioned that the shrine was dedicated to sailors and seafaring. That's also translated now in the modern day to astronauts. So you can even find display plates and pictures of space rockets whose crews have sought the protection of the shrine. That's cool. Yeah, that is really cool. I just imagine like astronauts trekking up there and like praying for a safe journey. Yeah. Uh, we should probably stop in Takamatsu. Absolutely. The capital of Kagawa. Mm-hmm. I saw one of their must-visit attractions is Ritsurin Garden. Yeah, that place looks so cool. It really does. So this, you know, we've talked about so many Japanese gardens. And, you know, some people might think, well, how many Japanese gardens can you really visit before they just start to all look the same, right? But this one is pretty awesome. 
It dates back to the 17th century when it was created as a private strolling garden for the local feudal lords. It took over a hundred years to complete this garden, and it's now one of the largest strolling gardens in the entire country. It's 75 hectares. That mean anything to you, Paul? No. I have no idea how big a hectare is, so I... Is, it, I, is that 10 acres? Hectares? No, that'd be dectares. Uh, dec, is that a thing? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I used Google to translate hectares into square miles. Okay. And this is, it's over a quarter square mile. That's a pretty big garden. That's, that's big, yeah, yeah, for a well-manicured garden. It has several lakes, not just a couple lakes, several lakes. Several. And you can actually go out on the lakes in a traditional boat. You can feed the koi out there. There's even a restaurant. Like a garden's got to be pretty big to have its own restaurant. I've seen tea houses and stuff, but a restaurant? Yep. It's a big garden. That's, that's the big leagues. And it just looks amazing, especially if you're facing west, because there are these huge like rolling hills, you know, those beautiful Japanese big hills behind the garden. So you can almost forget that you're in the middle of this big city and just, you know, you're in this just perfectly beautiful, massive garden. An excellent use of borrowed scenery, which we've talked about before. Very nice, Paul. Calling back to the Japanese gardens episode. Yep. I've even heard it suggested that it deserves a spot as one of Japan's three most beautiful gardens. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. There's so many three lists. Every episode, I feel like we're talking about three different three lists. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Another interesting feature about this garden is it has sakura trees, the Japanese cherry blossom trees, which is unusual for Japanese gardens. Japanese gardens like the year-round look, Mm -hmm. not just the blooming for two weeks. Mm -hmm. Ogijima is another island found in the Seto Inland Sea, about a 40-minute ferry ride from Takamatsu. Uh, So a nice little day trip or half-day trip. It's home to about 150 people, and it's about two kilometers long and one kilometer wide, so a small island. There's only a single village there, but the village overlooks the port, and you can go up and explore it, and it's like these narrow, windy roads with wooden buildings towering over you, kind of get like a really cool old-school feeling out of it. And then you can walk to a lighthouse on the other side of the island that's got a small museum with it. It's about a 30-minute walk through forest and plains to the other side of the island. I just felt like that looked really relaxing and fun. Yeah. I love those little tiny islands. Like, uh, I mean, my first experience with little islands in Japan was in Okinawa. And I don't know, there's just something... Yeah, relaxing and peaceful. Like you're so far away from the big cities. You just got like this little island, a little village. It just seems so laid back, you know? Yeah. There's a shrine in the middle of the island too dedicated to safe child delivery. All right. Childbirth. Cool. Yeah. As for food in Kagawa Prefecture, I mentioned Sanuki Udon in the uh, intro, I believe. Or was it in the history section? I think it was history, right? Yeah, I just remember that you mentioned it. Anyway, this is one of Japan's three (laughs) (laughs) main types of udon. So these noodles are square with flat edges, and they have a firm, chewy texture, which is apparently a result of the local wheat that they use. And you can get this stuff almost anywhere in Kagawa. Did you hear the dirty secret, though? Excuse me? You didn't? No, what's the dirty secret? These days, a lot of the wheat used to make Sanuki Udon is imported from Australia. I'm not interested anymore. <laughs> that's, that's a travesty, Paul. Hey, no offense to Australian wheat. Yeah, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Australian wheat. I just want that original Kagawa wheat to get that firm, chewy texture. That's right. all I'm saying. Right. Maybe they found a very similar Australian wheat. I don't know. Or maybe that's the one they sell outside of town, you know? That's what they're, like, selling to the mainland. I'm going to be walking into some restaurants in Kagawa and be like, tell me where you get your wheat. Is this local wheat? This is important. (laughs) Where was this growing? (laughs) 
All right, Paul, let's talk Ehime Prefecture. So where is Ehime located? It is on the northwest side of Shikoku, and this is my favorite name of the four prefectures because Ehime means lovely princess. Aww. That's fun. And I saw it described as a beautiful, warm, and traditional prefecture. That sounds nice. Mm-hmm. Where should we go first? Well, I saw that it's a good place for biking. I'm into biking. Yeah, I would love to do that. I saw, like I've seen some posts online from people that biked across Japan, and that just sounds like such an awesome trip, you know? Yeah. So Ihime is connected to Onomichi, a city near Hiroshima. And it's kind of connected via a bunch of little islands with bridges in between them. So you can bike across those bridges and look out at the other islands around. Like there are a bunch of little islands around there. And they're supposed to have stunning mountain ranges. Just sounds like a really pretty place. Nice. Yeah. So besides that, the first place I want to talk about is Matsuyama. Ah, yes. The capital. Exactly. And... The biggest city in Shikoku. Yep. The population is over 500,000, which might kind of give you an idea of how rural most of Shikoku is, if that's the biggest city, right? Well, what would we say? The population of Shikoku is 3.8 million. So I think that's right, yeah. One city that's half a million is a significant percentage of the overall population. Yeah. So Matsuyama is the home of Dogo Onsen, which I yes. told you to remember yes. in, in the history section. This is the oldest hot spring in Japan. It supposedly has 3,000 years of history. And so Dogo Onsen is the name of like the hot spring town, right? Kind of that area. Dogo Onsen Honkan specifically is, is this beautiful wooden onsen guest house that's pretty famous because it's said to be the inspiration for Spirited Away. Yep. A very famous animated movie from Studio Ghibli that maybe you've seen. The current building dates to 1894. Wow. Yeah. To an American, that's a really old building. <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot around here that old. Yeah. Uh, so you can visit this place and... They have like different options that you can choose from if you want to, you know, hang out in the hot spring. There are options from four to fourteen dollars about, and depending on the option that you choose, along with hanging out in the bath, you can get access to things like a yukata rental, different kinds of snacks, tea. There's even a guided tour that you can get. Nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's supposed to be so cool inside, just like a maze of rooms and stairways and passages all over the place. It's a super cool-looking place. Uh, one note, if you're thinking about going there, in 2019, they started a renovation that's supposed to take about seven years. Oh, man. So various parts might be closed or covered with scaffolding, uh, depending on when you go in the next few years. I've seen a lot of things covered in scaffolding. On my trips to Japan, it's kind of a bummer. Yep, but I mean, we got hundreds-year-old wooden structures. Yeah, it's got to happen. Yeah. Just let everything collapse after I've seen it. I don't <laughs> care anymore. Yeah. All that matters is I get to see it. <laughs> uh, and by the way, if you want to visit this onsen or any other onsen and you're, you're not sure about the etiquette, be sure to check out episode 42. We talked all about onsen and how that whole thing works. 42, that long ago, huh? Yeah. Wow. Oh, wow. That's exactly half the number of this episode. <laughs> You're always citing our old episodes, and uh, I'm not sure if you've just got an incredible memory or if you go like uh, scroll through real quick to like pull episode numbers. Paul, you can name any number. I'll tell you exactly what episode it was. Uh, episode 19. I'm just kidding. I totally look them up. Every do I have time. to go the other way? No. Every episode, if if like if a past episode is relevant, I'll go pick it up. And actually, there's a reason for that. It's because my sister, like when I first was talking to her about how we were doing this podcast, she told me about some other podcast she likes, and they would always reference other episodes 
Yeah. You know, and she said that she really loved that, that like if she wanted to learn more uh, about something, she could yeah, always yeah. go back and find that's, more. That's smart. Yeah. I was like, yeah, people can scroll. They'll find it, right? Maybe. My brother gave me some feedback the other day. Really? He shamed me. Oh, no. There was an episode where I made a joke about this homeless guy that we used to give our cans to. I remember that. You know, and I said, he didn't show up for a few days. And I was like, I hope he didn't know D. And my brother's like, that's really Is offensive. Is that what you said? Something like that. He's like, that's really offensive to homeless people. They're, they're stereotyped as a bunch of addicts. And he's 100% right. He's 100% right. My brother is, is an advocate for homeless people, and I love the work that he does, and I respect him a lot for it. I only said that because we were friends with this guy, and he would joke about smoking crack and stuff. Oh. That's why I said it, because like, this guy was on drugs. <laughs> Not that I care. That's his life, right? But it, he, you know, and, and my brother was like, I know you, so I know you didn't mean bad, but dude, it sounded bad. <laughs> I was like, oh man, I gotta be careful what I say. This stuff's recorded forever. Well, here you go. You get your chance for a public apology. I'm what sorry. I- I'm sorry to anyone who's ever been homeless or known someone who's homeless. I did not mean to offend. I was just spoke poorly like I sometimes do. I forgive you, Paul. Homeless people are people just like everybody else. It could happen to anyone at any time. I've had good friends be homeless before at times, and it just happens. And I have a lot of sympathy for them. It's not their fault. I totally agree. Record corrected. I feel like in some other episode, we did say something like that. Homeless people have come up like a couple times, I feel like, and we, you know, we've said that they get a bad rap and they really shouldn't. They're, they're people like everybody else. Yeah. I think I remember talking about once, like, homelessness officially doesn't exist in Japan because they refuse to count mm. any homeless person. <laughs> mm-hmm. But this is not a political podcast, so let's move on. Okay. Um, so we're talking about Matsuyama, which also has Matsuyama Castle, one of the 12 original castles in Japan. And one of the most complex, interesting, and unique castles in the whole country, too. And before we get into it, I just want to say... Don't confuse Matsuyama Castle with Bichu Matsuyama Castle, which is in Okayama and is also one of the 12 original castles of Japan. Whoa, confusing. Yeah. Thank you for that. It's not far away and it has a similar name, (laughs) but it's not the same castle. (laughs) So this Matsuyama Castle was built in 1603, which you may, you know, that's the Edo period. As we said, this, this was never a castle that saw battle or anything. But it's a super cool looking castle. It's it's really big. It spreads out a lot. Right, Paul? Yep. Yeah, this castle not just has a main keep, but it has a secondary keep. It has multiple turrets. It's just a really unique and more complex design than you generally see in Japanese castles. There's also exhibits inside that provide some history of the castle in the feudal period, which is always nice to get a little bit of that. Definitely. Uh, the castle is like way up on a hill overlooking the city, which gives you some nice views. But to make it even easier, there's a ropeway and a chairlift that'll like bring you up to the castle. So you don't nice. even have to walk up the hill. Very cool. Yeah. And if you're a fan of castles, believe it or not, Ehime has another one of the 12 original castles called Uajima Castle. So this one is southwest away from Matsuyama and it's much smaller. Did you see pictures of this, Paul? I think so, yeah. Like all this left is the main keep and it's it was like the not smallest a big one. Japanese castle I've ever seen. Yeah. But there's a mini museum inside. They have a few sets of samurai armor that look pretty cool. Nice. So if you're into castles, check that one out. Those those armor sets are so cool. Yeah. Yeah, now that we've, you know, since the last time I saw one of them in Japan, we've learned so much about them. I want to, like, go examine one in depth now, you know? Yeah, me too. Also in Ehime Prefecture is Mount Ishizuchi, the highest mountain in western Japan. It's known as the Roof of Shikoku. And this is just a bit east of Matsuyama. It's supposed to be great for climbing and hiking, but due to... An old local practice, women are apparently forbidden from climbing on the first day of climbing season, which is July 1st. So that's pretty dumb. Yep. 
Some traditions just need to go. Yep. Paul, you got anything about the Uajima Gaia Matsuri? No, I don't. This is a well-known festival in Ehime. It spans three days, involves a lot of people dancing, and demon cow floats, Paul. Demon cows. Like a demon and a cow? Or a cow that is a demon? A cow that is a demon. Ooh, that sounds so cool. Yeah. It's called Ushi Oni. Ushi is a cow. Oni is <laughs> Oni, of course. Ushi Oni. Yep. <laughs> I like that. It just sounds cool. I did a lot of research on this because there's, there, it was kind of hard to find like a lot of details about it. So the Ushi Oni is apparently a yokai from local folklore that would appear on beaches and attack people. Wow. Okay. That's scary. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly where that idea came from, but I found some really cool old paintings of Ushioni where they have like the body of a giant spider and then the head of a bull. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, so the style of the floats in the parade, these demon cow floats, it sort of reminded me of those dragons that you see in festivals sometimes, you know? Yeah. It's got, at least the head looked a little like a dragon. They got the big, uh, you know, it's big, scary hairy head a bunch of hair hanging down it's got kind of horns it's got its big mouth open does it like it, open and close i think so yeah but it has like these cow ears sticking out in the side. <laughs> <laughs> and the cows like the body looks really weird because it's got this really long neck it's like this giant hairy body with this tall hairy neck and then a big hairy head with the cow <laughs> ears sticking out and the floats are enormous. Like they have a whole team of people carrying them around. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I love the floats. Yeah. And uh, apparently they use these floats in the festival to celebrate their defenses against foreign invaders. Okay. You know, I guess defending the beaches like the Ushioni, right? Yeah. Makes sense. Yep. I kind of want to go to Uchiko. Okay. It's a little town about 40 kilometers southwest of Matsuyama. It was once a prosperous center of wax paper production. Uh, so keep, it, was, it was a rich little city. I kept hearing about the wax. Yeah. There's a place called the Kamihaga Residence that explores the historical industry in the town and shows you a lot about how they did it and what it meant to them. There's also a place called Yokoichi Old Town, and it's a preserved street of houses where most of the attractions in town can be found. So it's just like the old part of town where they purposely keep that feel and look. Yeah, gotta love those old towns. Yeah, it's supposed to look just how it did over 100 years ago when the town was wealthy and prosperous from the wax trade. So it's like almost like you can go back in time in this town. And I always love those types of places. Definitely. Me too. And then there's also a full-scale kabuki theater in town too. Awesome. Yeah. If you want to talk about food in Ehime Prefecture a little bit. Yeah. They have something called goshiki somen. Now, somen is a type of noodle you might be aware of. Goshiki means five color. So this is... uh, Basically, you get five different colors of noodles. Really? Yeah. I don't ever recall seeing colorful noodles in Japan before. Well, we had those green tea soba oh, noodles. Oh, you're right. You're right. Those were green. I stand corrected. Yeah. But these, so these five different colored noodles, they color them with eggs, green tea, buckwheat flour, plums, and shiso leaves. I like four of those things. Which one don't you like? Eggs. Oh, right. Of course. <laughs> But yeah, if you look up pictures, it's like you got these little bundles of, you know, very clearly different colors That's of cool. noodles. That's and cool. Neapolitan looks, noodles. Hmm? Neapolitan noodles. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it looks like they're normally served cold with dipping sauce. Okay. And often along with sea bream, but maybe you can find a version without the fish. Okay. But, I got to try making some like cold noodles with dipping sauce. Like I've never eaten that at home, but mm. that sounds kind of good. Especially in the summer. Yeah. Like cold noodles with like a nice sauce. Yeah, nice and refreshing when it's real hot outside. Yeah, to go with my highball. Sounds good. Totally. Man, we've been talking for a while, Paul. 
Well, we only got one prefecture left. What's that? Kochi. Okay. Yeah, Kochi is kind of a long, skinny prefecture that pretty much spans the whole southern edge of Shikoku, right? Kind of facing off into the Pacific. Yeah, pretty much the whole side facing the Pacific. Yep. Mm-hmm. So it's 85% forests and coastline. So if you want natural scenery, this might be the place to go. Kochi City is the capital of the prefecture and has Kochi City Market, the oldest outdoor market in Japan, Paul. Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah. It's been running since 1690. Wow. Yeah. That's so long ago. Mm -hmm. It's uh, about a, a kilometer long, the market, and it has over 500 stalls selling local produce. 500. Wow. Kilometer long market. That's, That's awesome. a big market. That's awesome. There's another one of the 12 original castles in Kochi. Uh, that's supposed to be well preserved. I don't remember if I saw a picture or not. You didn't even say what it's called, Paul. Uh, what's it called? Kochi Castle. Maybe you could never would have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's apparently known for its unusual layout. It allows you to see the main keep and the entrance gate at the same time. Oh, which I don't. I guess that's unusual. I guess I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. If you want to see a little more naturey kind of stuff, the Yoshino River is a good place. It's considered the last pristine river in Japan for some reason. Yeah, I saw that too. I think it's because there's like a lack of industry in the area. Yeah. So there's no no dams on the river. There's no factories dumping anything into the river. It's just like a a pure natural river. Untouched. Yeah. Cool. Supposed to be good. You could go kayaking down it. Yeah. Canoeing and kayaking or canoeing and rafting specifically. I saw the things. Now I'm excited. Yeah. Kochi also has the Sakamoto Ryoma Memorial Museum, which is located near the beach, uh, just to the south of the city center. Who is this Sakamoto guy? He played an important role in helping the Meiji Restoration happen. Hmm. So they're very proud that he's from the town. Okay. Big part of Japanese history. Cool. And it's right next to the beach, so it's like two birds, one stone. Sure. Paul, did you hear anything about a village called Kitagawa? No. They have Monet's garden. What's that? So you're, you're familiar with Claude Monet, the famous painter? Yeah, I was going to say, what's Monet have to do with Shikoku? Well, they have his garden there. So, okay, Claude, <laughs> for anyone, <What>? for not, <laughs> if you're not familiar with Monet, Claude Monet was a French painter, very famous guy. He had this water garden in France that was the subject of many of his paintings, like he did a whole series of paintings of this garden. You're not about to tell me someone like dug up all the plants and brought them over to Japan. Not quite. Okay. okay. But they basically recreated it. Okay. And uh, this is the only place in the world besides the original Monet's Garden that's allowed to use the name Monet's Garden. Oh, they're allowed to, huh? Apparently. Oh, that's cool. And it must be dope then. It looks... Awesome, dude. It's so colorful. And like they, they have all these different colored water lilies and, uh, you know, the bright green bridge and stuff. It just, it looks super pretty. Like Monet, apparently, I hadn't done a lot of research about Monet and his garden, but he spent like 40 years designing this garden to his exact specifications. He hired seven gardeners, but he was like the main architect for the garden. Wow. And, uh, you know, he, he, he put as much attention to detail into this garden as like people do into Japanese gardens when they design those. So it's like, it's a really pretty garden. Yeah. And you can go see it here in Japan. That's awesome. Yeah. So another thing Kochi is famous for is the Yosekoi Festival. Yeah. They were the home of the first ever Yosekoi Festival. So they're still famous for it. Uh, Yosekoi is a unique style of dance that's become famous all over the country now. So are you saying there are other Yosekoi festivals around Japan? Yes. Okay. 
or at least places where festivals where they do that particular dance. I don't know if they're called the Yosekoi festivals or not. Well, so what I saw is that like this is a relatively new festival. And because of that, there's not like a specific old traditional dance attached to it. So instead, different dance troops are free to create their own dance routines. Yeah, the first festival was held in 1954. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking like ancient history. Mm-hmm. They get a dance to more modern music. It's like a bit of a more lively dance than some of the others. Okay, so I, got, I mean, I got the impression that there are different dances depending on the dance troupe and like what they want to do because there, there, there are no old traditional rules about what the dance is like, you know? Yeah, I got the same impression. I got the impression that there were not rules, but there was like inspiration. Maybe you know, like you can kind of style of dance. Yeah, you can kind of like take it where you want, mm-hmm. but okay. it's supposed to be a energetic style that combines some traditional dance movements with modern music with twerking. Yeah, yeah, they <laughs> must be doing that these days, right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a few more years. But uh, a whole bunch of tourists and people come to dance, too, during this festival from all over Japan. Cool. Only like numbers I found about the festival was in 2005, there were over 10,000 people dancing in the festival. That doesn't even include like the people there as tourists and stuff. Yeah, a lot of dancers. So it's a pretty popular thing. Cool. I'd go to a citywide dance party. Totally. Sounds fun. And as for local specialties, Kochi has its own called Katsuo Tataki, which is essentially seared tuna. Basically, they take skipjack tuna, which is known as Katsuo in Japan. They grill it over a straw-fueled fire to give it a light smoky flavor, but you only want to grill it long enough to cook the outside. And then the fish is quickly put into ice water to keep it from cooking any further. And then they slice it up and serve it with a citrusy sauce called ponzu and some sliced raw garlic. I know that's not your type of thing, Paul, but it sounds pretty tasty to me. The one I saw was like the biggest pieces of sashimi I've ever seen. They cut it like big. Like thin, but a lot of area? It was that of thick. Really? Like it was like not an inch thick, but like not that far off. Hmm. And the fact that it was seared like that. I've never seen sashimi do that. I obviously haven't eaten sashimi in a long time, so maybe like that's done in other places, but I thought that was really unique. Yeah. I don't think it's called sashimi if it's cooked at all like that. Maybe that's why they call it tataki instead. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, it is cut Maybe it was bit. just the guy in the video I watched called it sashimi because oh. it was raw on the inside. You know, hmm. maybe he was not technically correct. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, it is it's definitely cut thicker than, you know, most sashimi kind of stuff, but thinner than the kind of slices of fish you might eat in the US, I think. Yeah, I'd say that's fair to say. All right, so if you want to visit Shikoku, should we talk about how you can get to and get around Shikoku? Sure. I mean, we already talked about the three big bridges that you can get there on, the expressways, so you can drive there. Mm-hmm. there uh, so Shikoku is connected to Kobe, Okayama, and then Onomichi, that town I mentioned, uh, a bit east of Hiroshima. Those are the three contact points, basically. So you can drive from Honshu to Shikoku, or, you know, Paul mentioned, I think, at the beginning, there's, there's a train that you can take that goes across the Great Seto Bridge. That's the one that connects to Okayama. And it's uh, a double-decker bridge. There are cars up top, and the rail line goes underneath. And you're supposed to be able to get some pretty great views from the train, too. I bet. So I didn't mean to say that there's only one train line crossing that bridge. There's only one bridge that you can get across on train, but there are actually JR lines that cross that bridge as well. So if you have a JR pass, as we often recommend, that would be a good way to get to Shikoku. And by the way, if you're planning to go to Japan and want to be able to travel around a lot, the JR Pass might be a good option for you. It gets you unlimited access to JR train lines across the country. So if that interests you, you can check out the travel tools section of our website. 
which is sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. We have affiliate links there to the JR Pass website. You can get one there and uh, help support the podcast at the same time at no additional cost. Yeah, if you're traveling between cities in Japan, the JR Pass is almost for sure going to make sense for you. Yeah, if you're going like at least the distance of a round trip between Tokyo and Osaka or Kyoto, around that distance, that'll uh, you'll be saving money getting the JR Pass. Absolutely. How else can you get to Shikoku, Paul? Well, if you want to be old school, there's a ferry. Ferries are fun. I like ferries. Yeah. There's also airports in Shikoku. None of them are international, though. So you'd probably have to take a plane from like Tokyo or some other major city in Japan. But that's doable. If you're in Korea, though, there are flights to Seoul from Matsuyama and Takamatsu. So I guess technically that's international. But they're not international airports that will like fly to the U.S. or anything. Yes, I was correct in saying they're not international airports. Somehow they do have one international flight or something. But Yeah, I mean, Korea's super close. Yeah, yeah, it is. So once you're in Shikoku, there are JR and private railways serving the island. But, you know, as usual, in the more rural places, you'll probably want to rent a car. If you're going to Nagoro, that little... Uh, what, what are you talking about? We're pilgrimaging on bicycles. Oh, right. Yeah, you can We're always bike it around the island. Take a bike or walk. Cover the whole island. All you need is time. Yeah. And shoes. And a little bit of energy. And maybe some of the, you know, the stuff to put on your feet when they get all blistered and stuff. <laughs> uh, I also want to mention shikokutours.com again. That's that website where I got all the history stuff. It looks pretty cool. Like I looked at some of their tours, and these aren't like day-long tours that are like a couple hundred bucks they do big tours like anywhere from three to 12 days so the prices are more like you know 1500 up to four thousand dollars per person they're not cheap but they look super cool they have an electric bike tour of the best of shikoku Doesn't that sound fun yeah that sounds really cool they have a tour of shikoku's castles and culture they have a tour that focuses on food and sake Seemed like kind of whatever you're interested in on the island, they have a tour for it. Nice. Yeah. Paul, have we talked enough about Shikoku, you think, for this episode? For this episode, yes. For life, no. Okay. Let's go to Shikoku and then talk about it a lot more. Sounds good. Okay. Well, that's the end of the episode. Uh, If you want to reach out to us, you can send an email to feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. You can also check out our website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. We've got some pictures and stuff there. You won't find pictures from Shikoku, though, unfortunately, because neither of us have been there. But um, there's that. What are we talking about next time, Paul? Our next episode is going to be about Shinkansen, bullet trains. Yes. And you know... Well, Paul, you know that I talked to you not long ago about how I wasn't so sure about that episode because we talked about Shinkansen in our transportation episode really early on. Yeah. And I wasn't sure how much more there was to say, but I was wrong. I started doing my research and there's a lot of good stuff to know about Shinkansen. They're pretty awesome. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we're about to have an hour-long episode talking about Shinkansen. Probably. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.